0: Today's reading is from Isaiah 6, 1 to 10, can be found on page 571 of your pew Bibles. In the year of King Uzziah, who died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two over their over their face, and with two covering their feet, and with two, the other two, they flew, and one called to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of, of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched it to my lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for and i heard the voice of the lord saying whom shall i send who will go for us and then i said here i am send me and he said go say this to the people keep the hearing keep keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive make the hearts of the people dull and their ears uh and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is the word of the Lord. I've always wanted to do that. (laughs) So it is my great pleasure to introduce Rick Sacra. If you'll uh, come on up, I think it's time for you. Um, Dr. Rick Sacra is one of our missionaries. He's been serving for 22 years. Did I get that right? Yep. Yep. so, the Lord called him to serve in Liberia, which is one of the fewest doctors per capita in the world. Does that sound right? Um, he runs the residency program at the ELWA Hospital in Monrovia, Liberia. Um, and I think many of you know his story. He's spoken here before, and um, it's on the cover of Time magazine. You might have noticed that. Um, but rather than, you know, take his thunder. Um, I'm just going to leave it at that and um, take it away.
1: Thanks. Thank you very much. Good morning. Thanks uh, so much for the privilege to speak and share with with all of you. Um, I just want to first of all acknowledge my wife, Debbie, who's here and uh, without whom uh, I wouldn't have uh, been able to come this far and uh, who's been... uh, with me through through it all, um, but thank you too f- to uh, to Westgate Church because you all have uh, prayed for us, you have encouraged us, you have supported us financially through uh, many years, and uh, so I can say along with uh, Jim that we couldn't have done what we did without your uh, help and your propelling us forward. So thank you so much. We're here to talk this morning about the call of God, and I I think we just need to start out with prayer. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you do call. Uh, We thank you that you do uh, use your Holy Spirit in our lives to speak to us, to direct us. Lord, we thank you that you're willing to give us a vision of you that you're willing to atone for our sins, and that you're willing to give us a call that will allow us to be a part of your kingdom's work. So open our ears to hear that call this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So how does God convict us of the need to leave a comfortable schedule or a stable routine and take on a new challenge in his name. How does he pursue us? How does he make us ready to do his will? Well, this morning we'll divide our thoughts into three sections as we walk through our passage in Isaiah chapter 6, which you just heard read. You'll notice that Isaiah's involvement in this call did not start with his call to missions. It started with a vision of the holy God. So we'll start there as well. And then secondly, we'll talk about God's atonement for our sins. And then finally, as we talk about the call of God in our lives, we'll actually compare the experience of Isaiah with that of another Old Testament prophet and see how they both responded to God's call. So close your eyes with me for a moment and let's imagine ourselves right beside Isaiah in the temple of God. The lighting is dim, just the oil lamps, it's smoky. Isaiah is struggling to, to see what's in front of him. He squints and gazes upward, and he suddenly realizes that God is there before him in this smoke-filled temple up on his throne. His long robe fills the temple. For Isaiah, the train of, of God's robe filling the temple seems to be a symbol For the glory of the Lord, the way the the more you perceive the glory of the Lord, the more you see it everywhere you look. The angels called seraphim were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of His glory. He says the sound of their voices was like thunder shaking the foundations of the temple. Okay, you can open your eyes now. God's holiness, his uniqueness and purity of character and his glory are the things that struck Isaiah the most. As we experience this vision along with Isaiah, how are we feeling? I think the term reverent fear comes closest, but words are inadequate to really express this this emotion. This emotion which our culture and our society have kind of tried to eliminate, right? Ever since the the Wizard of Oz, uh, we always want to demystify things. We want to to see behind the curtain, to reveal that Oz the Great and Powerful really is just an old man. As I was talking with my wife, uh, Debbie, trying to get at this emotion, reverent fear, and to figure out. From my own life, what came the closest to what Isaiah had experienced? I found myself thinking of the awe you feel when you're standing on the rim of the, great, the Grand Canyon or perhaps peering down the knife edge at Mount Katahdin or just at a rocky ocean shore and the sun is setting and the sky is lighting up with all the colors and you just feel like God is painting His glory in his handiwork, and you feel that that sense of awe. But even more so, uh, Deb mentioned how she was really struck when we were in Europe a couple years ago at that feeling of the greatness and holiness of our God when we were visiting some cathedrals, the soaring columns, the glowing stained glass, the buttresses, all the architect's labors are aimed at stirring this emotion in us. But then there's the second ingredient, the woe is me part. And uh, just a few weeks ago in Liberia, during the end of the rainy season, we were having these massive thunderstorms at night with the lightning strikes right over our heads and the tremendous boom, sizzle of the thunder. And here we are again. Just imagine with me the thunder. So that completes the feeling for me, you know, kind of a lightning storm in a gothic cathedral. That's about the closest I could come to reverent fear. Uh, and this is, I mean, I'm kind of, uh, making light of it in a way, but seriously, we need to find a way to cultivate that sense of true, I mean, I'll tell you, laying on our bed and having that lightning strike right overhead and feeling the boom and literally the room shaking, we were we were afraid. And uh, it sort of gave us that feeling of being afraid in the presence of something greater than ourselves. Well, what was it that transformed Isaiah's awe into fear and that statement, woe is me? What was it that changed his focus from looking at the great god before him and suddenly turns his attention to himself he has this sudden realization that it's this is not just a an informational presentation about god but he's actually in god's presence and like somebody like when you're in a very bright place and you're looking at the bright light suddenly you also look down and realize that you too are being illuminated by that bright light and it's like he looked at himself and said "Ooh, woe is me isaiah is cut to the heart by the realization of the reality of his sin he makes a very curious statement here and this has always puzzled me ever since i was a kid he says i'm a man of unclean lips From a people of unclean lips. He's suddenly aware and feels the need to confess his lack of holiness and purity in what he says, and that he's from a society of people who sin in the words that they speak. I found this very convicting to me as I was praying about this. How often do my words poison a conversation? How often do I actually bring pain or cut someone down and hurt them instead of giving grace and love with words? And isn't our society almost specializing in put-downs and insults? Uh, you know, we've become wordsmiths, crafting words to serve our own selfish purposes. And, uh, you know, you can even buy a book to help you study how to, how to put down your fellow human being and how to win an argument. So I took this opportunity to examine myself and really think about my words and and to see how Isaiah's confession about his, his words was an appropriate one for me to make as well. Well, God responds immediately to Isaiah's confession. The seraph does not hesitate, but flies over with a coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips. Now, I would have been suggesting, hey God, how about some cool water? We could wash my lips. Would that work? But, you know, God brings over the hot coal, Purification is not always pleasant. The conversion from a person whose focus is on ourselves to somebody who's prepared to serve in the kingdom of God means actually dying to ourselves. And, you know, we tend to think, because we're here in, in 2017, we think of our atonement as something that happened back 2,000 years ago, as an event that's completed in the past. It is finished. Christ's work is finished. But this image from Isaiah's vision is a reminder that we cannot remain distant from that atonement. It has to touch us. Our atonement will only come through an encounter with Christ where we actually experience, we see His hurt, how much He went through for us, the pain He suffered for us. And we allow that to touch us and even to feel that pain in our own hearts. And that's how we get rescued from the power of sin. You know, these visions like the one that Isaiah had, they don't really happen when you're like on 128 listening to the radio in the car on the way to work, do they? They don't happen even even when we take those few minutes in a hurry over breakfast to read a quick Bible verse uh, as we start our day. We don't Get those moments of a vision of God like that. And I have found this for myself. I really have to take time out of life, hours away from the routines of life to make time for fellowship with God, to make time to refresh that vision of God. And you know, this is going to look different for each one of us. I don't, I don't think I can pretend to prescribe for you How you get in the zone and how you insulate yourself from the world's distractions to where you can experience God in your own life. You have to seek that out for yourself. But lots of different people have figured different things out. For me, I can't stay home. I can't stay seated. If I stay in one place for about 20 minutes, I start to fall asleep. My mind starts to wander. So I have to go somewhere. I have to go somewhere. Maybe I'll go outside and sit on a park bench and read my Bible for a while or listen to the Word on on an audio uh, book. And then I'll go for a walk in the woods or on the beach somewhere and just talk with God for a couple hours sometimes. And that's how I get that experience of God. But I know other people, some people fasting is an important part of how they draw close to God. Some people go. Um, I have a good friend who goes about every month or so to a place uh, where everybody there is on a silent retreat with the Lord, and nobody is speaking. They're all just quiet, uh, but they have, you know, they have food, they have meals, they have a place to be, but it's quiet and it's a place to experience in God. My point is that we have to make times when we clear out all the clutter. The buzzes, the rings, the alarms, the vibrations. We have to clear it all out and invite God to speak to us so we can cultivate that sense of reverent fear and hear his still small voice. As we get into the third portion of our message about responding to God's call, I want us to talk about another Old Testament prophet who had a slightly different response to God's call. Isaiah when we think about Isaiah, you know, he's such a solid, stand-up, reliable guy, right? If we're, if we're in God's classroom, you know, we imagine ourselves in God's classroom. God's up front. He's teaching. Where is Isaiah? Isaiah's in the front row. He's, he's paying attention. He's taking notes. And God turns around and says, I need a volunteer to take on a tough assignment. And Isaiah's hand shoots right up and he says, here am I, God. I'm ready. Use me. Right? But... Thank God that there are some other prophets who had somewhat different responses. We have Moses who said, "Ah, I don't really talk good. Can you send my brother? He'll talk. We have Jeremiah who said, I'm too young. I can't do it. But my favorite is Jonah. Because Jonah basically raises his hand and says, I need to use the boys' room. And he takes off, and he doesn't stop at the boys' room. He goes down the hall, out the front door of the school, and he's, he's off, and who knows where he ends up. You know, and the neat thing is that God doesn't only use Isaiah's. He also uses Jonah's. Um, you know, Jonah was somebody who knew God, but he wasn't quite ready to sell out and say, here am I, send me. And whereas Isaiah's encounter with the great... I am, occurs in a vision set in the temple of Jerusalem. Uh, Jonah has his close moments with the Lord in the belly of a fish. Isaiah's at the Grand Canyon, listening to the thunderstorm and feeling awe of God. And Jonah's trying to wipe off the smelly slime and saying, I hope I get out of here alive. So I can't... I can't take the time to read the entire story of Jonah here, but I highly recommend it. I did clock it. It actually only takes about eight minutes to read the entire story. And it's a fantastic tale of God getting through to Jonah. So I'm just going to briefly summarize the story step by step here for us. The book is four chapters long, and each chapter kind of neatly covers one major plot element in the story of Jonah. In chapter 1, God calls Jonah and tells him to go to Nineveh to proclaim his word to them. Now this was obviously a very specific call and John, Jonah heard it clearly. Now in some of us, our call is not quite that clear. It's more of a gentle nudging from the Spirit in a certain direction. But you feel it and you know it still and you know, I'm really supposed to do this thing. God's call is there. In any case, Jonah had this definite specific call and he had no doubts about what it was. But Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh with God's word. Now we're not told in the Bible exactly why that was, that he was reluctant to preach to the Assyrians who lived in Nineveh. At this time in the history of the Jewish people, which was around 750 BC, Assyria was the dominant power in the region, violently, violently subjugating Israel's neighbors. In fact, within a generation, Assyria would take the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. This occurred around 720 BC. So we can imagine a mixture of fear and prejudice factoring into Jonah's response here. Certainly many Jews at the time felt that their relationship with God was exclusive to them. And uh, we're not necessarily interested in sharing the worship of Yahweh with Gentiles. So we're told of Jonah basically hearing the voice of God and saying, Nineveh's that way, I'm going this way. And he goes to the shore to a local port. He gets on a ship uh, headed basically as far away as he can get from where God wants him to be. This doesn't work out so well for Jonah as the ship's crew suddenly discovered that they sailed right into the middle of a hurricane. You can almost overhear the Captain talking to the the first mate, did you check the forecast? Was there anything about this in the forecast? But after casting lots and Jonah getting the short stick, they decide that throwing him overboard is their only option. And chapter 1 ends with Jonah in the sea being swallowed by a great fish. There in the belly of the fish, Jonah encounters God. He confesses his sin and he prays for deliverance. He vows to share his testimony with others if God will spare his life. And at the end of chapter two, the fish vomits Jonah up on the beach. Now in chapter three, God comes back and says, basically, shall we try that again? (laughs) Jonah issues his God his call. Sorry, God issues his call to Jonah a second time. This time there's no hesitation. Jonah makes himself available to do God's bidding. He takes the message of God to the people of Nineveh and declares God's impending judgment on them, predicting the destruction of their city in just 40 days. Jonah's message did not fall on deaf ears. Unlike Isaiah's audience, which we are told will be dull of hearing, the people of Nineveh, all the way from the poorest of the poor up to the king himself, declare a fast? They put on sackcloth and ashes. They confess their sinfulness to God. There's a major revival. And God hears their prayers and decides not to destroy their city. Now in chapter 4, Jonah gets angry with God for changing his mind. We're not really told exactly what set Jonah off. Was it that Jonah's status as a prophet would be questioned? Because the disaster he had foretold did not take place as predicted? Or was it that he was angry at the Ninevites because he knew they were evil? He knew they had done wrong things and deserved God's judgment. And so he wanted to see them suffer the just deserts. And now God was showing grace to them. So Jonah goes to a place outside the city... And waits, and I'm assuming that he's watching to see if the city is going to get destroyed or not in 40 days as he predicted. I can just imagine his conversation with God. What are you up to, God? You used me. You told me to judge their sin and to predict destruction, which I did. And here you are now paying attention to their tears and changing the plan. Well, if it's going to be that way, Jonah says to God, You might as well just let me die right here. It's hot and miserable out there in the desert. God makes a vine grow over Jonah's place there to shade him. And Jonah's enjoying the vine. He's happy about the vine. The very next morning, God sends a little worm to chew through the vine. And the vine shrivels up and dies. And suddenly Jonah's back in the desert heat again. Jonah's angry again. God challenges Jonah's motivations, his attitudes. God God says to Jonah, Jonah, is it okay for you to be angry about the little vine that grew up in a day and died in a day? That's okay for you to be angry about the life of this vine, but it's not okay for me to be concerned about the lives of 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh? The strangest thing about the book of, the, of Jonah is the way it ends. The story is really just left there. We never really find out if Jonah fully accepted God's sovereignty over the situation, although I assume he did because the story got back and got written in the, book of, in, 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 the in the Bible. So I'm assuming that he did, but he's, the book doesn't tell us that. It's really just left there for us to think, hmm, what's our reaction to God's sovereignty? To me, the striking thing about the story of Jonah is that while it is a missions story about someone called by God and going to proclaim his message in a foreign land, that story, the mission story, is only a side story. The real story in Jonah is about God's work in Jonah's heart. We're given a few details, but I can imagine that Jonah had to deal with God about his attitudes, about his prejudices, toward those he was sent to reach, about his disappointment and humiliation and having his prediction reversed. And each of us needs to be prepared for the same thing in our mission's journey. God is going to deal with us about our reactions to the way people receive our message or about our prejudices about this person or that person. God is going to deal with us about our disappointments when things don't go the way we thought we heard they were supposed to go you will find that god is as intent about what he wants to do in you as what he wants to accomplish through you he wants us to learn that he is sovereign and that we are always in the servant role this is not about me using my gifts for god it's about god it's about god being glorified it's about god reaching people Yes, through you, through me, through us. But it's about God being glorified and us being submitted to him. And that brings me to the story with which I'll close this morning. Debbie and I have served in Liberia with SIM since 1995. Well, around 2008, I started feeling a very strong burden in my heart to get more involved with training doctors in Liberia. It was just very frustrating to me to be working, caring for patients 60 hours a week and not have the opportunity to have somebody beside me for me to be passing on that knowledge and that information to to learn. However, at the same time, our kids were in high school or just starting college and we decided it would be best to come back to the U.S. in 2010 for the next steps in our kids' education. So we took a leave from the mission field with the plan to return to Liberia a few years later. While we were here in the States in in 2012, I took a trip to Nigeria for two weeks to learn as much as I could about training family physicians in the West African context, and we made our plans to return to Liberia in 2013. I began to share our plans to return with churches like you all our mission leadership our prayer partners anyone who would listen several different doctors who were heading to the mission field or relocating got in touch with me and I was anxious to get them involved I was in recruitment mode knowing that it would take a whole team of experienced doctors to be able to set up this training program Dr. Debbie Eisenhut a surgeon decided to come and join us Dr. John Fankhauser a family doctor and hospital administrator from California was praying about coming and joining us and decided to to come along with his wife and two daughters. And finally, Dr. Kent Brantley, a recently trained family doc who had signed up for a two-year term with Samaritan's Purse, also came and joined us at ELWA along with his young family. So I finally felt that God was really putting together the team that we would need to train family doctors at ELWA Hospital. Well, Debbie and I moved back to Liberia in September of 2013, and I started approaching the authorities with our proposal to train family physicians at ELWA. But before the end of the year, it became very clear that our kids were not thriving and that we would need to return home to the US. I was completely crushed and humbled. Here I had invited these other physicians to come and join me and to help make family medicine training in Liberia, happen, and now I wasn't even able to stay in Liberia. As I prayed about what to do, I still felt a strong burden to continue working in Liberia, to contribute in whatever way I could. And uh, SIM, our, our mission, was very gracious in allowing us to set up a schedule where I would go there for three to four weeks every quarter. And while I was in the States, I would be involved in fundraising and recruiting efforts here but just a few months later, the news reached us that a large number of Ebola virus hemorrhagic fever cases had been diagnosed in the border area between Guinea and Liberia and Sierra Leone. Dr. Debbie Eisenhut took the initiative to set up an isolation unit at ELWA, actually in our, in our chapel, and had all the staff trained in infection prevention techniques. And as many of you know, ELWA ended up playing a very important role in responding to the outbreak. Even though we did have cases of Ebola among our staff, of course including Dr. Kent Brantley and and myself, we had far fewer than other hospitals and certainly fewer than we would have had if it weren't for Dr. Eisenhut's timely intervention. And after I became ill, Dr. John Fankhauser was the key physician partnering with our medical director, Dr. Brown, Dr. Jerry Brown, in keeping the hospital open. He also was the one who initiated our Ebola survivor care program. So why did God bring us back to Liberia in 2013? Why did God put it on the hearts of others like Dr. Eisenhut and Dr. Fankhauser and Dr. Brantley to come and join us? I thought it was for the residency program. But God had a different plan. God was getting us prepared for Ebola. God wanted to be glorified. God wanted a team in place who could meet the needs of our community during the outbreak. God wanted to accomplish His plan, some of which we still don't fully understand and grasp. But we can see that so many doors God has opened to ministry through the Ebola crisis. We now have a vibrant Trauma Healing Ministry, which Nancy Wrightball, another Ebola survivor, is running. And of course, there have been many opportunities to testify to God's grace in a very public manner, whether through the media or to groups of doctors and nurses. Because of my contracting and surviving Ebola, I have gotten to stand in front of more than 3,000 high school students each June at a special congress for three, that they have for three days in Lowell, Mass., And I get to go there and share with them my love for Jesus as the motivation for the work I do. I get to share with them about having Ebola and of praying to God in the middle of that and of the satisfaction I have in serving people in the name of Jesus. I would never get to do that if God had not arranged things the way he did. And the reason I share this story is not because I hope you'll be impressed with my service. Frankly, it's much more that you'll get to see how a stubborn and sometimes clueless person like me can be used by God. And to see that while a well-thought-out strategy and a qualified team are important in missions, being submitted to God and willing to see what He is going to do is much more important. But be ready. Be ready for humiliations, for disappointments, even for disasters. Because God works in ways that we cannot really understand, but he especially works when we are ready to say, here am I, use me. Let us pray. Father God, we just recognize you, your greatness, your sovereignty, your majesty, your perfection. Lord, we recognize that your understanding of history, your understanding of what's going to happen next, and how it all fits into the tapestry of your kingdom's plan, that your understanding of that is way beyond our ability to comprehend. And so we just want to be, Lord, your servants. We want to be willing. We want to say, here am I, use me. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And make us ready to do whatever comes next in your plan for us. Thank you, Lord, for being here, for speaking to our hearts, and for going with us every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.